Welcome to our first EDU 101 podcast. So the students know this is the first time we've done a podcast delivery um, sure for, me, for me completely in any subject, but I don't know, you might have done it before in other subjects. I have to say I actually haven't. So this is a new adventure for both of us. Dun, 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 dun. So what we want to talk about today is actually the movie To Sir With Love, which is the movie that we asked you to watch to demonstrate some of the key concepts of the conforming perspective of education. So I guess before we get into it, I do feel a little bit like a radio host. <laughs> you actually sound like a radio host. You have a really good voice for this. Thank you. Um, before we get into some of the sort of nuts and bolts of it, just what, just given that the movie is quite outdated, Rachel, what did you think of the movie itself? Like what were your thoughts as you were watching Black and White and something that was set in the UK? Yeah, look, uh, this was actually somehow the first time I had watched this film. I meant to see it many times, but it was the first time and there were a lot of things about it um, that I have, I have to say I, I chuckled at with the, the change of, of time. But also there were so many different things in terms of um, casting in the film and actual roles within the film that, that I marveled at. You know, at one point when I got to the end, I was I was thinking about it and and I had a moment where I was thinking that I don't believe the um, the student from an Asian background had any lines, mm. not a single line of dialogue. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too that you've picked up on that because connecting that to the perspectives of education, it's really when you're looking at something that has a universal approach or a one-size-fits-all education, it often doesn't take into consideration what we might think of as racial or cultural or ethnic or nationality differences. And so already you're pulling out some of those key, those key ideas of the perspective. Um, yeah, so it, it's, a, it's really interesting. And I mean, a lot of our audience probably don't know Sidney Portier, who plays Mr Thackeray, but he was one of the first... African-American actors to really get fame and um, I guess to build a reputation at, at the time at the time when this movie was shot so he was in another movie um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner which was very controversial because it was about him being introduced to the family of his white girlfriend um, and so yeah so he in some ways he's been in lots of controversial roles but also at the time that these movies were set they would have just been controversial just by definition, because there was a very, I guess, limited and narrow understanding of um, racial difference and, and uh, ethnic difference. That is so interesting. And, you know, you do have a sense as you watch it that what was happening in that movie probably was extremely controversial and potentially groundbreaking in some ways as well, um, uh, particularly the content, you know, when they were addressing race yeah so do you want to maybe for the audience um identify or talk about one of those instances that you are referring to the way the movie first of all had um the conversations between the students themselves about race uh particularly um the scene where they're outside in front of the school and um the the one student i can't remember what he actually says but he makes some comment do you remember what the comment was, Claudia? And you've seen the movie many times more than yeah, you. Yeah, I, I think yeah. he says something like, oh, he, his blood is red or he bleeds red as well. 
Um, and then, yeah, then they have that sort of altercation where, yeah, um, yeah where the, I can't remember her name, the student who ends up having a crush on him. Uh, oh, Pamela Dare. So she actually That's says, it. you know, pull your head in. Um, of course he does. What do you think? Uh, and then there's that scene where he's talking to Seals and Seals is saying, you know, like my dad married my mum and I, you get the idea that his mum is a white English woman who married a black English man or maybe a black man from a different um, nationality and that he has a biracial identity and so that he's kind of um, burdened with all of the, the negativity that comes with that at this particular point in history, um, mm. which, of course, we could argue, given everything that happened that came to a head last year with Black Lives Matter, that this isn't actually something that's historical. It's something that has moved yeah. with us all the way through. Um, but I suppose so that we don't get too sidetracked on that that issue of race. Because, yes, we could talk about race the whole time for sure. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of gender stuff in there too. So let's. Um, I'm looking at um, a quote that I included in the bingo sheet, which is connected to gender, but also the conforming perspective of education, where one of the students says, when he's asking them about marriage, she says, "Well, it's life, isn't it, sir? Everyone gets married." Um, and so if we think about the purpose of education, so we think about that, that triangle of image of the child or student, role of educator and purpose of education, you can really see through this movie examples of where um, the purpose of education is to absolutely replicate the status quo. And in replicating the status quo, the understanding that there is very specific gender roles. So he says, you know, the, the, you, you men are going to go out and you're going to get a job and your job is also going to be to attract a woman. And he says mm -hmm. to the, the female students, you know, you're going to go out and you're going to attract a man. And how are you going to attract a man if you don't look after yourself and take care of yourself and stay clean? Um, and so I guess those sorts of gender, dis those gender distinctions really tie into that idea of conforming and replicating status quo. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because I think this movie is in a way the ideal example of conforming perspectives of education because not only does it reinforce those ideas, but also he kind of goes, forget content. We're going to focus on life. This is what your life is going to be and you better accept it now or you are going to have this, this, and this happen. There's very much a sense of trajectory. There's a sense of this follows this, follows this. And if you don't behave this way, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah, and it's the way that you've just spoken about it, Rachel, really links into those behaviorist and maturationist theories that underpin the perspective, because it really suggests that there is that linear sequential movement. And even, I mean, even when he talks to them, I always found it very um, sort of contradictory because you're looking at these students who to me look like adults, you know, if we're looking at from a very physical, mm. you know, and they're, they're there, they're, you know, they're, they seem grown up, they're smoking in the classroom, you know, but he still thinks of them as children. And there's that turning point where he says, you know, I'm going to stop treating you like children and treat you like an adult. And as an adult, you have to be rational and thoughtful and respectful. So there's a real um, dichotomy between that position of child slash learner and becoming an adult who is rational and objective and can engage with, with the world in a very different way. And I think that really also demonstrates the role of the educator as expert, as well as um, demonstrating that link to behaviorist and maturationist theories and thinking that also that there's one singular endpoint. That endpoint is to become that adult, you know, to become the rational thinking, objective adult who can, 
you know, who, who is engaging in the world and doing the right thing. And again, there's one way to be right and one understanding of what the end point is. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are all really, really good points. And I can't help but think about how almost little nuance surrounding childhood there is in the film. Uh, I mean, obviously they make a point in saying that the school is a particular um, demographic and that it's from like poor communities. So the, they almost allude to the behavior being due to that. Um, but they have such an extreme between the child and the more adult behavior. And then they almost treat, um, you know, Mr. Thackeray as some sort of god among teachers who can come in and tame these wild beasts. I can't even think of the terms, but there are so many great terms. I think even a few of them are on the bingo sheet. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like, you know, the, the young rascals and the number of times they lament about these students. And then even the scene at the end when those students come in and just grab all of his, you know, grab his present and his paper and sit on his desk and just act like it, it's just that stark, stark um, contrast. And then his decision to actually stay like, oh, there's other children who need help transitioning into that adult. Um, and you can so see that conforming perspectives of education coming through there. Yeah. And I think, um, it, yeah, it's really interesting when you, uh, when you think about that idea of children as, um, you know, sort of running wild, the younger the child is, the more that is applied to them. So I'm thinking about working in early childhood and you and I both know from experience, you know, the children who are sort of running around aimlessly, not necessarily engaging or doing anything in particular are often labeled, um, in, in, I guess, deficit-based ways. And I think that deficit-based thinking about children and students more broadly comes from that, um, those underpinning theories because there is a sort of, there is a, an understanding that there's a norm, that there's a particular and normal way to behave. And if you can't do that, if the child or student can't do that, then there's something wrong with them and you've got to figure out. And this kind of links to the last slide um, of the, um, the last slide in the mini lecture where I talk about what's normal and what's abnormal. And so those behaviorist and maturationist theories really set up this idea of normal behavior and what it is to be a three-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 22-year-old. You know, I would argue, Rachel, when do we actually say that we've reached the end point and we're, you know, objective adults? Right. I still go a little crazy sometimes. So I don't think I'm there, but according to the milestones, I should be. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know that anyone ever reaches that point. <laughs> Let, let's be real. I mean, what is that point? The unattainable milestone of adulthood. I mean, that's why we have that whole um, idea of, oh, I'm adulting today and it's not fun. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that on, on the internet, like, oh, I have to be an adult today. Um, but I feel like, you know, we feel like we don't fit into to that category. What would it be like for children who are forced into even more extreme, like intense categories? And I was also going to say, as you were speaking, that I feel like those theories also lead to where we see things like checklists. You know, when we were talking about, say, um, a NAPLAN and stuff like that, that this is the way it needs to be. You tick it. Has someone done this yet? Have they not? Are they achieving or are they not? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just putting the um, the value on meeting those goals. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's probably important to say, and I and I think this is in the I make reference to this in the mini lecture, but we're not saying that checklists are 
necessarily a bad thing. What mm. we're saying is they're not the only way that you would assess or try to understand how a child learns and develops. So, you know, we don't, because, I mean, I know when I was a, a kindergarten teacher that there are, there are times when you really needed those checklists, you know, like if there was a child in your three or four year old group who wasn't really speaking yet, you know, you might want to, you might need to do an assessment and see if there needs to be a referral made to a speech therapist or something like that. But it's more about when you measure every single child universally against all of those mm. milestones. Um, one of the things I used to like telling the students is I did not crawl. I went straight from scooting along on my bottom to, to walking. I didn't do the in-between stage. So if we were looking at that um, and those developmental milestones and only using that to measure the success or what children can and can't do, then we could be, you know, significantly underselling their capabilities. Um, and if we have high expectations of children, we want to avoid doing that. There are situations where checklists are appropriate and useful and helpful. Um, but I think the danger is when you end up, end up just using them as a sense of okay and, and I, I i know why some places may choose to do that because there's a lot of a lot of children limited time um but you want to have obviously that variety but yeah i feel like checklists are something that kind of fit with that perspective more so but the thing you were saying about your experiences about um not crawling i actually have my own which was i went straight from crawling to running <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I love it. I know. So I just got up and just started running and it's like, okay. Um, and she hasn't stopped, audience. No, she hasn't no. stopped running since then. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, and you know, and hopefully the students, the, the students will have their own stories of how that, how they might've actually disrupted um, developmental milestones. Mm -hmm. um, and still, you know, like the other one I use is being able to cut a straight line with scissors as a, as some sort of criterion for having excellent fine motor control. I still can't cut straight with scissors. I've even struggled to cut straight with a guillotine that had, you know, a ruler on it because it's just, it's just something that I, you know, and it's the significance that's placed sometimes on those milestones. I'm okay. Mm. Like I have turned out okay without being able to cut, you know, cut in a straight line. Likewise, I can vouch for it. <laughs> and you mentioned there that people might use checklists or um, that sort of marking off uh, if time is an issue mm. and I think that's really important because in the conforming perspective of education it really is about the teacher you know so it's not what is best for the students or how do students learn best it's all really determined by what the what the teacher's parameters are and time is a really big one you know is now working in early childhood and I'm sure across other educational contexts even for us Rachel in higher ed oh, yeah. we're so constrained by time that often we feel like well, we almost feel like we have to cut corners or do things in a particular way because there's so much to do. Um, and I think that probably is a nice segue into the curriculum characteristics. The one that always gets me first is um, the way that he tells them they have to sit in the same seats every time they come into the classroom. So if we were to think about the arrangement of space in the conforming perspective of education, tightly controlled and also designed to control the flow of students. So it's again, controlling movement and controlling behavior and engagement. So 
Um, and for many of us, that was probably our experience of schooling. I know when I went to school, uh, at primary school particularly, but even high school, I had a desk, it was in a row, I had someone in front of me, someone behind me. It was almost like exam conditions, but all the time, that's how we sat. Um, and so that, that perspective or that curriculum characteristic of space is what that looks like um, in a physical way. And in an early childhood setting, I suppose, I remember when we used to move the room around, one thing that we often talked about was where we would put the sign-in desk. And that sign-in desk wasn't necessarily to control the flow of children. It was to control the flow of families, mm. which I think is really, when I reflect back on that now, like we would be like, we don't really want the families to come in and sort of spread out and explode all over the room. Let's create, like we were almost creating like a corral where we'd, you know, um, direct how children and families could move in the room. Um, and that was based on, that was based on control. So I think, that's a really interesting part of um, space in the movie. I thought that it was interesting, the big deal he made about punctuality. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly the beginning, the indication of them being unruly children was that they weren't on time. And when they did come in, the entrance was always something um, dramatic. So, you know, his scene of, of having what was her name again? You said it before. Pamela Dare. Pamela, yes. Having Pamela demonstrate the adult way to enter a room um, when, when you're late. Um, As a lady was, with dignity. Oh, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> that, that was quite a scene. And it's just another way to regulate things. It makes me think of in early childhood uh, context, some conversations I've heard um, over the years of um, teachers who are frustrated because families aren't bringing their children at a certain time, they should be here at this time and pick them up at this time, or that they bring them too early and pick them up too late and they've been there too long and what that could mean. So that whole regulated sense of time and how long um, a child should be or shouldn't be doing something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think too, thinking like when you talk about time and space that way, um, thinking about the idea that education and learning happens within a room, within a building that's offsite, even that is a conforming perspective mm. of education because we've challenged that. Um, or when I say we, I mean the profession teaching has challenged that over time. Um, and I mean, they take, they do go out on the excursion, but he has to go to great lengths to get that permission to be outside of what is a traditional teaching and learning space. But even now, when I think about it, the idea that people, that children or students learn sitting down all the time. I mean, I know I actually learn better if I can walk around and talk and think. And so, you know, within that conforming perspective of education, if you can really understand that there is actually not a lot of choice for students, they basically have to do what they're told. They have to learn what they're being taught to learn and they have to meet assessments in a way that has been set up by the system and by the educator. So even though there is some, I mean, you know, he makes the salad and he says he'll talk to them about rebellion and life and death and marriage and all those things, he really still is in control of the content of the curriculum and in control of how that curriculum is developed and delivered. And, this, and again, and the assessment. So how the students, even at the end where he has the opportunity to write, I can't remember what they're called, but I guess they're almost like personal references for the students mm. so that they have a, good, a better opportunity to get a job. You know, it's all, it all comes back to that role of the educator as expert. And so I think that when, we, when you talk about um, 
the char curriculum characteristics of people really in that teaching and learning relationship. There's no input from families. There's no input from community. There's no input from the students, really. It is all sits with the educator. Um, and the students might remember in the doodly that you created, Rachel, we talked about if, if you position yourself as the expert, it really puts a lot of burden on you because you, 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 you have the responsibility of then seeming to know everything and being able to answer everything instead of recognising that anybody coming into a teaching and learning space is bringing prior knowledge. And that's, that's something that's not recognised in the conforming perspective of education because, you know, again, children and students are seen as empty vessels blank slate sponges waiting to have information yeah. transmitted to them. I was going to say, thinking of that was the characteristic, um, oh, well, I guess that whole notion, I suppose, of educator as expert is uh, particularly evident in the scene um, related to the gym and what happens with that, I forgot what's called, that climbing thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and how he he acts in what he believed was correct, but there's a sense in the movie that he's not quite sure that what he did actually was the right thing. And there's a sense for the viewer that you're not quite sure that he's handled it in the right way. But it, you know, in the end, it comes down to almost a because I said so and you'll get it one day sort of situation. Yeah. Which definitely feels like a conform, conforming, conforming perspective of education. Yeah, and it shows it shows Rachel really nicely the the contradiction of that because it looks like he's giving the student choice, but what he's actually saying is there's two choices here, and one of them is the right choice, and the right mm -hmm. choice is to act like the adult and to apologise and to, you know, basically acquiesce to the the power when we talk about that power dynamic the power that the educator holds, even though that PE teacher looks like he had a pretty bad reputation and he wasn't mm. necessarily a great teacher. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, there is messages in that. Um, I think in terms of, I was just thinking about content and um, what examples we could give the students listening. And I think there's one bit where he talks about, where they talk about students learning manners. Um, and I think I, re I think I talked about that in the mini lecture as well, where I said, you know, the decision to privilege manners and for that to be a thing to be taught has come from a particular understanding of children. Um, and the same way where he says in one, in one, when he's making the salad in class, he says, teaching, I'm, go I'm going to teach you the truths about the world. And again, there's this sort of um, unspoken belief that there are truths, particular truths. There's one right answer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think about, I know when I was working with children that children become, yeah, they're very clever. And I remember that, you know, children became very good at saying sorry because, not because they were necessarily sorry, but because they knew that if they said sorry, they would be off the hook. So, you know, yeah. I, two children might have a bit of a, a bit of a, a um, you know, a scuffle or something, and then they'd be like, oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean it, um, mm -hmm. knowing that that would actually be... So the question then becomes, what are we teaching children about sorry? Is it... Are they actually learning the significance of sorry? And if they're not, then maybe... I don't know. I mean, I had a different... Like, I know with even with um, please, you know how a lot of adults say to children, what's the magic word? Um, please or thank you. I think sometimes please is implied in the question. So I wouldn't necessarily make children do that all the time and while i'm thinking about that i'm thinking about the way that he's asked them to call each other miss dare and you know use these adult names and i'm thinking yeah. in kindergarten as a teacher i never asked the children to call me miss lamb 
it was always Claudine, you know, yeah. like I just, it wasn't a thing for me. So there's, it's really interesting how power sits also within the names and the titles that we give. The scene at the end at the party, when, you know, you were talking about the salad analogy, I really loved how that one student made the salad and the, the teacher's eating the salad and she's like, yeah, it's his recipe, he made it. But, you know, I made all of this so proud. And she goes, I don't actually like it. it it's not nice. <laughs> like, and, you know, she, it's just this brief moment of, okay, all right, no, it's actually not a good recipe, but we're acting like it's this, this amazing thing because it's his recipe and he's taught yeah. us how to do it. And we're recreating, we've made it for this party, even though it doesn't taste good. But, you know, and I mean, I guess that's a sign of respect for him, but also it just kind of shows that whole process of um, recreating, this is the right way to do something and so on. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting because just as a, maybe a last little bit is thinking about that respecting of teachers and how you can see that, that the contrast from the start of the movie to the end of the movie where he, they do actually respect him. Whereas at the start, it's like he's forcing them. And it really makes me think about how a lot of adults will be, you know, children need to respect us because we're adults. Um, we've earned the right for that and children need to earn, they need to, um, you know, they need to work hard to be respected. And so that also is a sort of a demonstration of how that power play can be really um, inequitable because we expect children to just, because their children respect us just because we're adults and just because we're teachers. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we have earned that as adults. Um, yeah. And that's a whole other thing because I think people probably have, mixed views on that um and we and you know like i'm sure these conversations will come up at other times but it just yeah when i think about that that power dynamic between adults and children and how really children are probably one of the most marginalized groups in the world um, because they're often being positioned as subordinate and inferior to adults um, like you said before what a tricky position to be in I mean, we could talk for hours, but the fact is if we did, then you wouldn't have much space to, to dig into your own views and your own thinking about it. And we'd love to hear that in the flip grid when you record it. You know, what are the characteristics that stood out to you? What do you think about the film in relation to the conforming perspectives of education? Yeah, fabulous. So that's a wrap for our first podcast. It is, how exciting. I know, See thanks for time. being here today. Yeah. <laughs>